All right, you guys didn't run away. Praise God. All right. Now, if I do see somebody jump up and run out the door, I'll assume it's to move your car, not because of what I said. I'll just go with that. Let me feel better. Uh, if you weren't here, I think most of you were, but we've talked about why it's important, the ministry of answers in Genesis, what we're on about, talking about in the radio interview, giving answers to give the answer. Showing God's word is true to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the heartbeat behind everything we do. And it's so important because God's word is under attack, and we do see the consequences of that attack. And so that's why we're passionate about this. That's why we need answers, answers to questions like the one we're going to talk about right now, and that is... This one, you saw the picture earlier, do animals evolve, all right? Now, of course, to answer this question, it's a funny picture, yeah, I'm having a little fun with it, but to answer the question, we must define the word evolution, which is what we'll do during our time. But before we jump into that, uh, according to our culture, evolution in all its possible meanings is just an absolute fact. According to our culture, even our pop culture, let me give you a quick example of this from a show I'm sure you'll recognize, a show called Friends. Or evolution. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> but you don't, uh, you don't believe in evolution? Nah, not really. <laughs> you don't believe in evolution? I don't know. It's just, you know, monkeys, Darwin. You know, it's a, it's a nice story. I just think it's a little too easy. <laughs> <laughs> too easy? Too... <laughs> The process of every living thing on this planet evolving over millions of years from single-celled organisms is, is too easy? Yeah, I just don't buy it. Uh, excuse me. Evolution is not for you to buy, Phoebe. Evolution is scientific fact, like, like, like the air we breathe, like gravity. And that is what we hear, is it not? But is that true? Is evolution like air or gravity? Well, it might surprise you to know it depends on what you mean by the word evolution. Because the word itself does have multiple meanings, and that's not weird. Most words have multiple meanings. But only one possible meaning to the word evolution is actually scientific. Only one plausible meaning to the word evolution is actually observable, testable, repeatable, and falsifiable. All the other meanings to the word evolution are actually believed by, get this, faith. And so what we'll do during this session is talk about some of the possible meanings of the word evolution. We'll talk about what's observed with real science, what's believed by faith, even by the secularist. And when we do, we'll see that real science confirms the Bible again and again and again and again. It's so fun to see that we use these answers to share the gospel. So hold on tight. We're going to cover a lot of information. So here we go. The first type of evolution you'll need for the origin of everything will be something some would call cosmic evolution. The origin of time, space, and matter. And according to the secularists, it all began with a Big Bang. You guys heard about the Big Bang? The idea that around 14 billion years ago, nothing exploded and produced everything. Oh, trying to make a joke, I know. Uh, it's what is taught in our textbooks. Uh, this one, the older books, is 18, to billion, 18 billion years ago, roughly. But it says, all the matter came from a small, a small dot, smaller than a period for, from a page. And for some unknown region, that dot exploded or rapidly expanded to produce everything we see today. Where did the dot come from, though? Discover Magazine 2002, where did it all come from? And if you look close at that little small gray caption box, it says, actual size of the universe, essentially right after birth. And they know that from the digital photographs they took while they were there. All right? It's a very dogmatic um, and they say underneath, the universe burst into something from absolutely nothing, zero, nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. 
Guys, this is not a science versus religion issue. This is a religion versus religion issue. It really is. You've got to assume something by faith. And either you assume what the Bible says, that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or you assume what man guesses, which is in the beginning, nothing made everything. You have to assume one of those two starting points because we were not there to observe it. And here's a point, as we made last session, again, ultimately, all the evidence exists here in the present. And here we are. We're living in the present. We're trying to figure out what happened in the unseen past to bring about what it is we see today. And we've got the same rocks and the same distant starlight and so forth. But again, we interpret these things differently in the present. And they're making different conclusions about where they came from based on their different starting assumptions. Based on the different worldviews. And again, you'll hear this theme again and again throughout our sessions. Wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. Reminded of the uh, story of a mother took her little boy to the doctor's office. They're waiting in the waiting room. And as they are, the little boy looks across the room and sees a very pregnant lady. So he walked over to her like little boys do. And he said, excuse me, miss, but why is your belly so big? (laughs) Not a good question. But (laughs) she said, well, because I'm having a baby. He said, and the baby's in your stomach? She said, yeah. He said, well, is he a good baby? She said, oh, yeah, he's a real good baby. To which the boy responded in horror, well, then why did you eat him? <laughs> I, I know. It's silly. But, again, wrong assumptions, wrong conclusions. And I guess, guys, secular scientists have reached some really wrong conclusions about certain things, like the age of the earth and rock layers and so forth, because they're starting with the wrong worldview, the wrong foundation, the wrong assumptions. But if you elevate man's word over God's and choose to believe in the idea of the Big Bang, then you've got some really tough questions to answer. Questions like this one. Where did the matter originally come from? And again, secular scientists have no good ideas. Or questions like this one. Where did the laws of nature come from? If you believe matters all that exist, then how do you explain the reality of these immaterial realities? Things like laws of logic, laws of physics, laws of gravity. Where are the laws? Where did the laws of nature come from? They're immaterial. And by the way, if evolution is true and everything randomly changes over time, why don't the laws of nature randomly change over time? For example, why hasn't gravity changed? Why don't we weigh ten pounds more than we used to? <laughs> yeah. We might, but it's not because gravity changed, amen? It's not gravity's fault. That's called Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, no. Does not make sense, though, within the evolutionary paradigm. Does make sense within the biblical worldview. And then where did the energy come from to run this place? And again, secular scientists have no good ideas. The reason being is this idea of the Big Bang, it violates one of the most fundamental laws in science, something called the first law of thermodynamics. Now, here's the thing. If something is a law in science, here's what that basically means. It means we've never observed anything to the contrary. Never. And one of the fundamental tenets of this scientific law is that we have never seen something come from nothing. Never. And I cannot imagine a bigger violation of this scientific law than the idea of nothing exploding and producing everything. Violates the law of science, this particular idea does. And here's the thing, though. Many secular scientists will say, yes, we recognize this does violate many laws of science, but this is the mantra you're going to hear in response. You'll hear it in the textbooks, uh, in secular colleges, in museums and zoos and so forth. This is what you'll hear. Yes, we know this violates certain laws of science, but somehow nature found a way. And maybe one day we'll figure out how nature did it. That's the refrain you'll hear time and time again. So... After nature made nothing explode and produce everything, then you need stellar and planetary evolution, the origin of stars and planets. Let's talk about the stars first. 
Do you realize that no one has actually ever observed a star forming? Never seen the process actually taking place. I could show you a bunch of quotes like this one from other secular scientists who would say and agree, the silent embarrassment of modern astrophysics is that we don't know how a single one of these stars managed to form. Never actually seen the process taking place. Now, they do have a guess called the nebula hypothesis that says, well, we see these gas and dust clouds out in space, and maybe for some reason they begin to spin and collapse. And as they do so, the gas and dust run into each other. That causes a lot of friction, causes heat. A fusion starts in the middle of the cloud, that's your star, and then the gas and dust clump together around your star, and that forms your planets. It's called the nebula hypothesis. Now, there are beautiful gas and dust clouds out in space. No one argues that. They're gorgeous, and they tend to be huge, light years across. But here's the thing. As we watch these clouds with real science in the present, do you think that on their own, they're always expanding or contracting on their own? What do you think? Always, always, always expanding. Why? You do the simple math, the pressure of the gas pushing out is over a million times greater than the force of gravity trying to draw these things in. The gas is extremely powerful. And even though we've never seen a star form, it has been estimated there's enough of them out there that every person on planet Earth could own 11 trillion to themselves. And God knows every one of them by name. And by the way, if you look when he made the stars on day four, what's the description that it gives for him making all these stars? Is it some elaborate, amazing description? No, it says he made the stars also. <laughs> 11 trillion per person, whatever. He's God, right? It's showing God's power. But to get that many stars, even in 20 billion years, we should see 6 million forming every minute. We should observe 100,000 forming every second. We can't see one. Now, we do see them blow up from time to time. It's called a nova or a supernova. It's a really big explosion. And right now, on average, a star blows up around every 30 years. So if we've been around for billions of years, then it would be reasonable to conclude there should be millions, if not billions, of supernova remnants. How many do we observe with real science? About 205. That's roughly 6,000 years worth, maybe seven, six, seven thousand years worth of supernova remnants. 6,000. 6,000. I've heard that number before. Uh, if you're like, wait, I don't understand, we'll get to it later on, all right? Just hold on to that. Uh, and then you need planetary evolution. You need to see how planets form. We don't see planets forming either for some of the very same problems. But if the evolutionary guess were correct, then due to numerous laws of science, we expect to see the sun and the planets all orbiting in the same direction, and they're not. We know Venus, Uranus, and possibly Pluto rotate backwards from the others. And also, think about it. If the planets in the sun from our solar system are made from the same gas and the same dust, then why are they so different from each other? Elemental composition, their atmosphere, chemical makeup, all sorts of things drastically different. But, again, the mantra continues, nature found a way. And then you need something some might call organic or maybe chemical evolution. You have to somehow get life from non-life. And this is a huge problem for these secular scientists. Paul Davies, a well-recognized expert in this field, not a creationist, says nobody knows how a mixture of lifeless chemicals just spontaneously organize themselves into the first living cells. Matter just doesn't do that. It's a real problem. And because it's such a problem, there are many scientists today who are leaning to or buying into the idea of something called panspermia or directed panspermia. You ever heard of that? of you have. If you, if you don't think you have, I bet you have. You've probably seen this idea in at least five different movies. 
It's the idea that aliens came and seeded life on this planet. And it evolved from there. Is that familiar now? Very popular idea. Uh, to give you an example of this, I want to show you a clip from the movie Expelled, hosted by Ben Stein. Anybody remember Ben Stein? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? <laughs> I love doing that now because all the kids look at me like, what are you doing? <laughs> There's a remake coming. Don't worry about it. All right? You'll get it then. Um, but he did a DVD called Expelled. And it, we don't agree with everything in the DVD, but overall, well done. And in the clip I'm going to show you, he's interviewing a guy named Richard Dawkins. You guys know who Richard Dawkins is? If you don't, he is the Pope of atheism, all right? He is very passionate about his atheism. He's, he's evangelistic, if you will, for his religion of atheism, and he talks a lot about it. He's a smart guy, really, very sharp. But again, not a head issue, it's a heart issue. And he's an evolutionary biologist. And he was asked by Mr. Stein, uh, where did life come from? I want you to hear his response. And as you do, just bear in mind the power of someone starting assumptions, the power of their worldview. I, I put an argument in the book. Well, then who did create the heavens and the earth? Why do you use the word who? You see, you, you, you immediately beg the question by using the word who. Well, then how did it get created? Well, um, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how, how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that, that must have happened for the origin of life. And what was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right. How did that happen? I told you, we don't know. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. no, no nor has anybody. Nor has anyone else. What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. That is the key. He's not alone, though. Again, a very popular idea within the scientific culture. Today, you might have heard of Bill Nye. You might know who Bill Nye is. The I play science guy on TV guy, all right? And so you have Bill Nye. He's been uh, he interviewed, uh, I had a debate with Ken Ham a few years ago, our present CEO. He came to the Ark Encounter about a year ago when it opened up, and they had kind of a second informal debate as they went through the Ark Encounter. And he was asked about this issue of the origin of life, and listen to what he says here. You find these shock patterns, and you find the minerals from Mars. So it is not crazy. It's extraordinary, but not crazy to suggest that Mars was hit with an impactor through what's generally called a home in orbit, an orbit where it goes falls toward the sun but ends up on the Earth. You and I are descendants of Martians. 
Okay, that and that's not, not crazy. And that's not crazy. Is it crazy that you and I are descendants of Adam and Eve? Uh, we are descendants from a common ancestor. I don't but know is that it crazy that is it crazy that God made the first man and woman and we're descendants there's, of them? For me, there's no evidence of that. So is that crazy? But I, I wouldn't use that word. What would you say? It's a, uh, you're betraying your intellect. You're not no. using your head. So, so you're saying it is crazy? It's frustrating. It's frustrating. <laughs> and again, those guys, they're smart guys. They are not dumb. They're smart, but it's not a head issue. It's a heart issue, and thus it becomes a worldview issue. You see, here, why, here's the thing. Why is it that smart guys like Bill Nye, Richard Dawkins, and many others, why are they okay with the idea of aliens making life but not God? Here's what I suggest. Because if God made us, he owns us, he sets the rules, we're accountable to him. He's judged the world in the past, he will judge the world again in the future, and sinful man does not like that idea. So what do we do, whether we recognize it or not? We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. What is true about God from creation, creation screams there's a God, we suppress it. Our conscience from the inside out screams there's a living God, we suppress it because we don't want it to be true. You see, an unbeliever can't find God for the same reason a thief can't find a cop. Doesn't want to. All right? Not a head issue. It's a heart issue and becomes a worldview issue. And the reason they struggle so much with answering this particular question, where did life come from, is because, well, there's a law in science called the law of biogenesis, which says life only comes from, guess what? Life. That's all we have ever observed. We have never seen a rock give birth to anything. If you do, run. <laughs> it's not good. It's not natural. But yet evolution suggests that somehow life came from non-life, violating this very clear scientific principle affirmed again and again. Also, inside of life, we find unbelievable amounts of something called DNA, genetic information, more complicated than anything we can make. And there are multiple laws of science that tell us that information always comes from a mind. Now, once you have it, you can make copies of it, but its origin is always from a mind every single time. But yet evolution suggests that somehow all the information inside living things came from non-living, non-thinking matter. Violates this law as well. But again, nature found a way. Then that leads us to this possible definition to the word, something some would call macroevolution. The idea of changing one kind of animal to a whole different kind. And this is what most people tend to think of when you say the word evolution. It's the idea that all life shares a common ancestor from the distant past, billions of years ago, that evolved to all the forms we see today, those trees of life you see in the textbooks. It's the idea that some dinosaurs evolved into birds, very popular today, and promoted in the movies Jurassic Park and all that whole series. If you watch them close, you'll see the theme all the way through. It's the idea that humans and apes today share a common ape-like ancestor from the past. Uh, macroevolution, we summarize it often with this definition. It's molecules to man evolution. Uh, my favorite definition, though, is the one at the bottom. It's the goo to you via the zoo theory. <laughs> you start off as goo and we get to you. How? Through the zoo. Fish, amphibians, reptiles, and mammals. If you can remember the word farm, that's the suggested order of evolution. And by the way, it's not a new idea. It was around way before Darwin. It's as old at least as Greek mythology. Darwin just popularized a particular form of it. And he popularized that in his book, The Origin of Species. And by the way, you know, Darwin made some decent observations. He really did. But nothing new 
And then he reached some really bad conclusions like this one. That it is a truly wonderful fact that all animals and all plants throughout all space and time should be related to each other. So ultimately, we are all related to birds, monkeys, bananas, and even nuts. Maybe that's why your family, right? I don't know. <laughs> the Smithsonian, you share half your genes with a banana. This textbook, you share a common heritage with earthworms. An earthworm is your daddy, more or less. Funny and sad all at the same time, right? By the way, a little side note, a little caveat over here. If you tell generations of people they're just animals, is it any wonder when they start to act like animals? Something to think about. Ideas have consequences. But before we kind of talk about this problem with macroevolution, let's recap what the evolutionary worldview wants us to believe by faith thus far. That around 14 billion years ago, nothing exploded or rapidly expanded. And from the chaos of an explosion, you get the orderliness of the universe, galaxies, and solar systems. That goes against many other known laws of science if we had time. And then somehow the Earth formed around 4.5 billion years ago. It was a hot molten mass, basically a hot rock, and it rained on the rocks for millions of years. And those rocks came alive in that organic soup around 3.5 billion years ago. So in a real sense, this would have to be Grandpa. To where it came from. And then they evolved to do simple single cell organisms like bacteria, then eventually into humans, but we were a lot of things in between. Discover Magazine 2004. Was your ancestor a sea sponge? Inside, it declares rather dogmatically, this is your ancestor. To which I can only respond. Just kind of throwing it out there. <laughs> If you're going to make it that easy, I've got to hit that softball. You can't. And then man evolved on the scene around 3 million years ago. So that's a big picture perspective of this idea. Problems with the idea. They are legion. Here are just a couple. Here's one. I'll show you this picture. Let you take that in for a moment. We don't see it happening today, do we? We don't see one kind of animal change into a whole different kind. We don't see the... Crawl, literal bird dog, banana fish, great white horse, lion and roost, colosaurus. We don't see one kind of change of a whole different time. We don't see an intermediate from a dog to a cat and something in between. We just see regular kinds. Dogs are dogs, cats are cats, so forth and so forth. Now, if there was an evolutionist up here with me, he'd say, but Brian, you're being silly. Of course we don't see this happening because evolution happens too slowly. You can't see it happening, which is convenient, right? But if it did happen at all, I would still argue there should be some observable change we can still see today, right? In the form or function of particular things like a leg into a wing or a gill into a lung, changing of the eyes, whatever. should be some intermediate we should observe. But let's say I give you all that. Let's say, okay, you can't see it happening at all. Then where should the evidence be for these mass changes over time? It should be where? Fossil record. There should be literally, I mean literally, trillions of these clear intermediate links changing from one kind to another, from fish to amphibians to reptiles and mammals and all things in between. And guys, they're just not there. The details are in a different talk at a different time, but I'll give you one quote to drive this point home. You see, there should be trillions. There's a handful evolutionists will argue over, but there's a, there should be trillions. And the honest evolutionist knows this. I'll show you a quote here from Dr. Colin Patterson, senior paleontologist, fossil expert, at the British Museum of Natural History. Staunch evolutionist and has access to one of the largest fossil collections in the world. And he wrote a book on evolution. 
But here was the interesting thing about his book. In his book, he included no examples of transitions, not one. And again, a staunch evolutionist has access to all these fossils. And so someone noticed and they said, they wrote him a letter. Why did you not include any examples of transitions in your book? He gave a very honest response. He said, I fully agree with your comments on the lack of evolutionary transitions in my book. If I know of any fossil living, I would have certainly included them. I'll lay it on the line. There's not one such fossil. They're just not there. And it's such a problem that some will go to great lengths to make the evidence fit their preconceived ideas, to make it fit their worldview. Uh, a good example of this is Lucy. You guys heard of Lucy? All she repeats scenes, Zaphorensis, don't be scared, just means southern ape. Um, and, of course, Lucy is presented as one of the best evidences of an ape man, a hominid, a transition from apes to humans. But here was the problem. When they found Lucy's bones, and later on, bones of her relatives, all of them are like the bones similar to that of a chimp. All of them, including her hips. Her hips are angled in such a way Lucy would normally walk on all fours. She could waddle on two legs like chimps today and go back to all fours. But, of course, her discoverers did not want her to have chimp-like hips and be just a dead chimp because who cares if you find a dead chimp? Nobody, right? They want her to be a hominid, eight-man transition, because that gets a lot of hype and support for your work. And so watch what a couple of guys did to make the evidence fit their worldview. And as you watch this again, just bear in mind the power of your worldview. The ape that stood up, it was a revolutionary idea. We needed Owen Lovejoy's expertise again, because the evidence wasn't quite adding up. The knee looked human, but the shape of her hip didn't. Superficially, her hip resembled a chimpanzee's, which meant that Lucy couldn't possibly have walked like a modern human. But Lovejoy noticed something odd about the way the bones had been fossilized. When I put the two parts of the pelvis together that we had, this part of the pelvis has pressed so hard and so completely into this one that it caused it to be broken into a series of individual pieces which were then fused together in later fossilization. After Lucy died, some of her bones lying in the mud must have been crushed or broken, perhaps by animals browsing at the lakeshore. Uh, this has caused the two bones, in fact, to fit together so well that they're in an anatomically impossible position. The perfect fit was an illusion that made Lucy's hip bones seem to flare out like a chimp's. Quick pause. The perfect fit was an illusion. Why? Does not fit their worldview. Now watch what they do. But all was not lost. Lovejoy decided he could restore the pelvis to its natural shape. He didn't want to tamper with the original, so he made a copy in plaster. He cut the damaged pieces out and put them back together the way they were before Lucy died. It was a tricky job, but after taking the kink out of the pelvis, it all fit together perfectly like a three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. As a result, the angle of the hip looks nothing like a chimp's, but a lot like ours. You think? 
grinding down, all right? And here's the thing. Once again, those guys are brilliant in their fields. They are very, very smart. And some say, okay, but then do you think they're trying to be deceptive? Honestly, for the most part, I don't think they are. They're being consistent with their worldview. They started with the assumption this book is wrong about the past. Man's guess is a better starting point. Evolution must be true. So how do I understand this evidence in light of this worldview the best I can? Their problem is they have the wrong foundation. They need to start with God's word and not man's. That's the problem. And by the way, keep in mind as we talk about the fossils and the fossil record, arranging animals or fossils in order on paper does not prove a relationship. Even if you find them buried in a particular order, that doesn't prove a relationship. If later on you guys find me buried on top of a hamster, it doesn't mean he's my grandpa, all right? But for those who are convinced that, you know, placing things in some order proves a relationship, I need to show you some of my research I've been doing. I've been trying to figure out the evolution of the fork. It's just good to eat, amen? And so how did the fork evolve? And according to my study, it had to start as something like a knife maybe 500 million years ago. And it had to be the knife because that is the simplest structure, right? Very vertical, not a whole lot of curves, very, very simple. And then the knife, over long periods of time, natural selection, erosion, mutations, and uh, geological pressures, the knife evolved into the spoon. Now, in the initial handles, you can see the similarities, right? Then towards the top, they got the concave, convex structure of the spoon. You see the change happening. Now, there did used to be bigger spoons a long time ago, but they died out during a mass extinction event millions of years ago. Now the smaller spoons. And then the spoons over more eons of time, more natural selection and erosion and mutations evolved into the fork. And you can see the clear progression from the handle halfway through the spoon structure. The grooves get deeper over time. There it is. You can't argue with that. Clear evidence. And then I looked at that a little harder and I thought, you know what? I've got a missing link. That is too big of a jump. There's got to be something in between. What is it? Don't get ahead of me. And I got hungry. And I went to Kentucky Fried Chicken. <laughs> and the lady just handed me the missing link. What'd she hand me? That's right, the spork. Discovered that Kentucky Fried Chicken. Right. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Here it is, the clear evolution of the fork. You can't argue with that. You can even explain the so-called races. It's not hard to do. There you go. <laughs> Uh, I will stop. I could go on, but you get the idea, right? Just because I can arrange things in a particular order and tell a story to go with that order, does that make my story true? Not at all. What do we actually observe with the fossil record? Well, here's what we observe. We observe billions of dead things buried in rock layers, laid down by water all over the earth. Since there was a global flood as described in the Bible, guess what we expect to find? Bunch of dead things, buried in rock layers, laid in my water all over. There's tremendous confirmation of the Bible's historicity. We've got tons of information on that if you want to look more deeply into the fossil record, the flood, and so forth. But back to the topic at hand. Summary evidence for macroevolution. We do not see it in the present. We don't see it in the fossil record. And on top of this, there is not an observable mechanism in the present to make it even plausible. We'll get to that one here in a moment. But before we do, notice... These first four meanings to the word evolution are believed by, guess what? Faith. None of them are ever observed. Actually, I would even call it a blind faith because they're believed in spite of all the laws of science they break. 
But then it leads us to the last possible definition to the word. I do not like it. I think it's confusing at best, deceptive at worst, but something some people use, so we need to be familiar with it. It's what some would call microevolution. And we simply call this variation, adaptation, speciation, what it's always been called. And this one is observed, no questions asked. This is the idea that lizards will produce various variations of what? Lizards, right? Different sizes, colors, even features with lizards, but lizards stay lizards. And would you believe, oh my goodness, this is exactly what the Bible teaches from the very beginning. Ten times in Genesis 1, he made distinct kinds of animals to reproduce according to their kind. And again, the word kind in the Bible, for the most part, is equal to about the family level of modern day classification. So God made the dog kind. And within the dog kind, dogs produce variations of what? Dogs. Elephants make what? Cats make what? Unfortunately, right? So you get the idea. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, sorry. <laughs> so, for example, dogs. Tons of variation, right? Big dogs, like my great Dane, Samson. Big dog. Even dogs as little as a chihuahua are both still dogs. I think. The jury's still out on chihuahua. I'm not really sure about that. But tons of variation. Horses, you can make tons of variations of the horse kind. You can make zorses and z-donks. You can breed zebras and horses, same kind of animal. Here's a zebra with no PJs, kind of sad. Uh, here is a really confused critter. This is a real picture, a real animal. That's a zebrella, real animal that is not photoshopped, and it is, just has no idea what's going on. All right, it's really confused. Uh, here's a z-donk we have at the Creation Museum in our petting zoo. Here's our zorse. We have many other things. If you like the movie Napoleon Dynamite, I've got great news for you. Ligers are real, all right? They're real. You can make a liger. You can breed a lion and a tiger. Why? They're the same kind of animal. Beautiful picture from National Geographic of a liger. See, variations happen. No one argues that, but guys, here's the key. These variations have limits. For example, farmers have been trying to breed bigger pigs for a long time. Will they ever get a pig as big as Texas? There's a limit in there somewhere, Right? That might happen, I don't know, maybe when this happens. <laughs> there are limits. If there weren't limits, make that happen. That'd be incredible, right? Let's make pigs fly. That'd be awesome. But we can't. There are limits. Roaches do become resistant to pesticides through a mixing or loss of genetic information. That's true. Will they ever become resistant to a sledgehammer? <laughs> I hope not, all right? So... What causes these variations in our fallen world today? Good question. Two main things. Natural selection and mutations. And guys, hear me on this. No rational, informed person argues that things don't change. Of course they change. The questions are twofold. How much do they change? And which direction is that change going? Is it an onward, upward progression, changing a molecule into a man, a rock into a rock star, a fish into a philosopher? Or is it maybe a mixing and loss of genetic information over time and dogs make dogs and cats cats? What do we actually observe with real science? And then here's the key. In order for natural selection and mutations to lead to the idea of macroevolution, change a rock into a rock star, here's what they must do. And this is so important to get. Make a note of this mentally, whatever. They must add brand new genetic information over time. They must. If they don't, macroevolution is biologically, genetically impossible based on observations. You see, think about it. If you're going to change a dinosaur into a bird like it's popular today, that requires brand new genetic information, doesn't it? 
New, new information for new eyes, new lungs, new hearts, new nervous system, new bone structure, new feathers, new instincts, new everything. And that requires brand new, specified, organized genetic information to accumulate over time. If these things don't add it up over time, it makes macroevolution genetically impossible. So let's take a quick look at these two things. Natural selection. I think we're kind of familiar with the term, heard it a lot. It is the survival of the fittest, which, by the way, does not explain arrival of the fittest. That's a different question altogether. And essentially, it's the ability of organisms to adapt to their environment because of the unbelievable amount of genetic information inside living things. That's why we see so much variation. It's, we can't comprehend it, but let me give you an illustration to kind of drive this home. The estimated number of atoms in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. That's a 1 followed by 80 zeros. It's beyond our comprehension. We cannot begin to comprehend that number. Go back, there it is. But that number is nothing compared to this number. Because of the amazing amount of information inside of human beings, it has been estimated that the possible number of children that one man and one woman could have, one at a time, without any two of those kids being genetically the same, is this number. 10 to 2017th power. And you thought your family was big, right? And God put that kind of variability into the dog kind, into the cat kind, into humans. That's why we can see so much variation from natural selection to act on and produce variations. But the question is this, can it lead to macroevolution? And guys, even today, most evolutionists would agree the answer is no. Why? Because it does not add any new information. It just works on what's already there. Placed there, by the way, by the creator when he made them, speaking them into existence. But let me give you an example of how this works uh, in just in a real practical way. Let's say you get two dogs who get off Noah's Ark. And they get married and have kids, and their kids get married and have kids. Their kids get married and have kids, and you have a whole bunch of dogs. Right? Population spreads out. Different combinations of genes will survive better in different environments. But let's say the original parents for this population had genetic information for S, short hair, and Dell, long hair. And, of course, it is more complicated than this, but the principles hold true. These parents can make multiple generations or multiple variations, right? They could pass on both short hair genes and make dogs with really short hair. They could pass on a short hair and a long hair gene and make dogs with medium hair. Or they could pass on both long hair genes and create hairy. Everybody with me? Pretty straightforward, right? So let's say a segment of this population with these different variations goes up north where it is cold. Well, in that environment, the dogs with the short hair and medium hair they will get cold, they will freeze, and then they will die. <laughs> it's okay, all right? If that makes you sad, they can move away. Is better? Okay? Either way, after a while, they're no longer there. All you have left in that cold environment are dogs with long hair, which on their own only produce dogs with, guess what? Long hair. That is natural selection in action. Now, notice, through that process... Think about it. Did you add genetic information or lose it? You lost it. You lost the information for short hair. And by the way, they're in trouble if the environment changes. They can't adapt like they used to could. Or think about it like this. Some dogs go where it's hot. In that environment, the dogs with long hair and medium hair, they overheat and die <laughs> or move. All right. And after a while, you only have dogs with short hair, which only produce dogs with short hair. Again, that's natural selection in action, and you're losing shuffling at best or losing genetic information. And through this process, we get tons of variations of dogs. 
No one argues about that. But you know what? They were dogs. They are dogs. They will be dogs. That's not Darwinian evolution. That's just dogs being dogs, just like God created them to be, according to their kind. And again, most evolutionists will say, yes, we agree with that. Natural selection can't do it alone. But they'll say there is something that does add the new information we need to change a rock into a rock star. And what is that amazing ingredient? They will say it is. Well, it's mutations. Like this textbook says, mutations are the original source of variation. Mutations produce all these changes that can change a rock into a rock star or a fish into a philosopher. Okay, well, the mutations must be pretty awesome then, right? So what are they? You might be surprised to know the classical definition for mutation is when genetic information is damaged or changed. They are random, rare, mostly harmful. Very often they are lethal. As this secular scientist says, the great majority of mutations, well over 99%, are harmful in some way, as is to be expected from accidental occurrences. Mutations are accidents within your genome. They're typos within your DNA. Got a question for you guys from your life experience. When you have an accident or your kid has an accident, does that tend to make things better or worse? Worse. And the more complicated the item, the more, the more impact of the accident making things worse, right? And that's so true for your genome because it is so complicated. Mutations tend to mess things up, birth defects and so forth. As this secular scientist says, no matter how numerous they may be, mutations do not produce any kind of macroevolution. Why get this? Because they rearrange or delete existing genetic information. They do not add it. And that is so huge to understand about this particular issue. You think about it like this, a literary example. You can take the word Christmas, delete some of the letters, rearrange the other ones, and make all sorts of cool words, has, match, Sam, Ram, and so forth. But you will never get the words Xerox, Zebra, or Queen. The letters simply aren't available. Same thing with mutations. Just works on what's already there. A few examples of these in real life. Here's a five-legged bull. No new information, just a repeat of what he already had and detrimental to his health. Here's a short-legged sheep. Uh, that's cute, right? But it will be the first one the wolf eats because you can't run but so fast with those little legs. Natural selection, he's gone. All right. Um, that's sad, all right. And he can't move anywhere. He's got short legs. Um, actually, that's a loss of information. Uh, for the, and here's actually, here's another one, another example. Here's a two-headed turtle. All right, now for the kids out there, this is a mutant turtle. It's not ninja, all right, but it is a <laughs> mutant turtle. Uh, no, that was my childhood. All right, but anyway, um, as this secular scientist says, not even one mutation has been observed that adds a little information. Indeed, they all destroy information. None can serve as an example for macro evolution. And again, this is devastating to the secular's argument. And I want you to hear how the secular's response to this particular argument. Richard Dawkins, the guy you saw earlier, was once asked in a program to give one example of a mutation that adds new information. And I don't often agree with an atheist, but I think this time he just knocks it out of the park. Listen to what he says. Can you give an example of a genetic mutation or, 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 or an evolutionary process which can be seen to increase the information in the genome? <laughs> I 
That was rude. Why did she play that music? I don't understand. Um, <laughs> he does not give an example. Why? Because there are no good examples. Mutations tend to mess things up. That's just what they do. They're great for explaining the origin of death, disease, and destruction. Typos within your DNA. And someone say, okay, but wait a minute. What about bacteria becoming resistant to antibiotics? I mean, isn't that evolution in action? No, that's still through information loss, as this secular scientist says. I'll give you one example as we begin to kind of wrap up this particular session. H. pylori, mean little critter, does bad stuff to humans, and we needed to kill H. pylori. I'll call it HP for short. And here's how we killed HP. We created an antibiotic. Inside the antibiotic, we put poison. That's inside the antibiotic, right? So the poison's inside. And HP, we knew, would absorb the antibiotic through its cell wall. And once the antibiotic got inside of HP, HP has things inside of it called enzymes. And enzymes break stuff down. And what happened is those enzymes of HP would break down the antibiotic and would thus release the poison we had placed inside the antibiotic. And we killed HP from the inside out. Everybody with me? That was working really, really well. It was an effective method. Until we ran into HP's mutant cousin, Henry. I don't know why Henry, but anyway, all right. And Henry had a problem. What was Henry's problem? Well, when he was born, he did not have the enzymes all normal bacteria have. And typically, that'd be very bad for Henry. He'd be the weaker one. He would die off first. And he was sad about that. But in this particular environment with those antibiotics present, this mutation, it is beneficial, but still through a loss of information. Because notice what happens. Henry absorbs the antibiotic through his cell wall. But since he has no enzymes, the poison is never released. The antibiotic was never broken down. Therefore, the poison stays inside, does not get released. Therefore, Henry does not die. Ha, ha, ha. Now, did Henry survive because he had more information or less? Less. He's missing the enzymes all normal bacteria have, and typically he would be the weaker one. Beneficial in that environment, but still through a loss of genetic information, still going in the wrong direction. And since bacteria reproduce really, really quickly, his people take over the population in that particular environment. But guys, I could show you so many more examples, but all we ever observe with real science, with natural selection and mutations, are new combinations of already existing genetic information put there by the creator with less variability than they started with. That's the opposite of what you need for the idea of macroevolution. And then there's one last recourse for the evolutionists. And this is the next session we'll talk about the issue of time. They'll say, okay, but yeah, hey, just, I know it's, okay, yeah, but just give it enough time. And all those small changes led up to big changes. Isn't that what we hear? Here's the problem. These small changes we observe with real science, are they typically adding information or losing? Typically losing Give it all the time you want. It's going in the wrong direction. I love how this secular scientist uh, deals with this issue when he says, whoever thinks macroevolution can be made by mutations that lose information. It's like the merchant who lost a little money on every sale but thought he could make it up with volume. <laughs> Amen, somebody, all right? <laughs> yeah. So to answer the question directly and to make another point before we wrap up, do animals evolve? Define your terms. So important to do in our day and age. What do you mean by evolution? If by evolution you mean uh, variation, adaptation, speciation, dogs make dogs, cats, cats, finches, finches, moths, moths. Yes, we agree with that. That's what we observe. That's what the Bible teaches from the very beginning. No problem. 
But if by evolution you mean and, or include the ideas of cosmic evolution, macroevolution, life from non-life, no, we don't believe that because the Bible does not teach that and it's not observed with real science. You believe that by faith, a blind faith. And micro does not lead to macro because they're opposite kinds of change. They're going in the wrong directions. And here's the thing. Typically, as a ministry, we talk about this issue. We don't go through all the pain of breaking it down every single time, the different variations of evolution. It would take too long. We simply say evolution, or we say molecules to man evolution and summarize the whole theory. But here's why I broke it down for us today. I want you guys to see something really, really important. I want you to see how multiple generations and millions of kids today have, in a real sense, been duped, tricked, even brainwashed into believing that evolution in all its meanings must be true. And then they conclude, if evolution is true, well, the Bible's history is false. And the Bible's history is false. Why trust it about morality or salvation? Let me show you what's been taking place. It's called a bait and switch. The logical fallacy of equivocation. And that's when, in the course of an argument, you take a word. And the first time you use that word, you mean one thing. Later on, you use the same word again, but mean something different to try to prove your original point. Let me show you how this plays out. This is what you'll see all the time in the textbooks, in zoos, museums, National Geographic, whatever. They will say, authoritatively, dogmatically, we know evolution is true. And the first time they say the word evolution, they tend to imply the whole theory, at least macroevolution, usually including the Big Bang, life from my life. But evolution, all its meanings must be true. It is true. Okay. How do you know? Where's the evidence? Oh, we're glad you asked because we see evolution happening all the time. And all you ever observe in the textbooks are variations within the kinds. Look, these dogs change into dogs. That proves we came from Iraq 3.5 billion years ago. Look, these peppered moths that we study for 150 years, they evolved into, guess what? Well, the same variability they started with. Moths are moths. Look at these finches Darwin observed. They evolved over 150 years into, guess what? Finches with a median size for the beak. Kind of goes back to it depending on the weather. What did Darwin observe? He observed finches with small beaks, medium beaks, and large beaks. I look around the room. There are people with small beaks, medium beaks, <laughs> and large beaks. You're not evolving. Just variation within the kind. But guys, so many people have been tricked into believing. If I see variations, the whole theory must be true. Those things are polar opposites. Many have been tricked. Let me give you an example of how they've been tricked. From the DVD, Evolution versus God. We have some of these on the table back there. It's only five bucks. It's done by Ray Comfort. Uh, if you don't know, Ray Comfort does a phenomenal job on all his stuff. Great quality. He it engages people really well. And, of course, he always brings it back to the gospel at the end. So this is a great evangelistic tool. But in this DVD, he, uh, he went to college campuses. And he's asking science students and professors for evidence of what he defines as Darwinian evolution. What we just call macroevolution. Uh, the dog and the cat type idea. And uh, listen to what he gets in response. He gets the same thing over and over and over and over again. It's almost like they're brainwashed. Check it out. When you say change of kinds, you mean the evolution of one species from another or to another. Yes, we have that in action, actually, in the Galapagos. Could you give me one instance? Yes, we have an example from a group of birds called Darwin's finches. And you take a look at the difference between the finches on the islands that all started out. I mean, that's very, very observable. But that's not Darwinian evolution. There's been no change of kinds after the finches become. They become genetically new and anatomically new, recognizably different species. So they're still finches? 
Well, of course, there's still finches. Yes, there's no change. Of, there's no change of kind. Little birds that he uh, that he had observed. That oh, what did they become? Um, their beaks, their beak shapes. They're, they're still colors. birds. Yes, three finches that turned into different types of birds. Based they're still finches. Well, for example, Darwin and, and his study on evolution of the birds on the island that he went on to there. Their beaks changed. Their beaks. Uh, they're still birds. There's no change of kinds. That's within no, no, no. the kind. It's evolution on the beaks. That's so that's called adaptation. It's not Darwinian evolution. There's no change of kinds. There's no different animal involved. I want something that shows me Darwin's belief in the change of kinds is scientific. So, uh, but in case that did not convince you, this secular atheist professor will convince you with the evolution of the stickleback fish. The scientific method is, must be observable and repeatable. So could you give me one piece of observable evidence for Darwinian evolution? Okay, I would point to, as one great example is, look at the genetics of the stickleback. What's that? Uh, so stickleback fish are a very interesting collection of species that were recently isolated after the end of the Ice Age. What did they become? They're, they're various species of sticklebacks. They stayed as fish? Well, of course. <laughs> Amen, all right. <laughs> One last little story, and we'll wrap up here. Uh, you see, some people can make some good observations and still reach the wrong conclusions when you're starting with the wrong Assumptions. I'm reminded of the story of some scientists who want to see how high a frog could jump as they progressively cut off its legs one at a time. I know, but it's for science, right? So they took a frog, put it on the ground with all four legs, and they said, jump, frog, and it jumped 80 inches. Pretty good. They picked it up, cut off one leg, put it back on the ground. They said, jump, frog, and it jumped 70 inches with three. They picked it up, cut off one more leg, put it back on the ground. They said, jump, frog, and with two legs, it jumped 60 inches. They picked it up, cut off one more leg, put it back on the ground, and they said, jump frog, and with one leg, it jumped 50 inches, which is impressive. They took the frog, cut off the last leg, no more legs, put the frog back on the ground. They said, jump frog. Now, they anticipated it might jump, you know, 40 inches based on the progression of the data. Actual jump was zero. So they yelled louder, jump frog. Frog did not move. They yelled even louder, jump frog. Frog did not move. They were baffled. So <laughs> they tried the experiment again. New frog. <laughs> and they got the same results every time. So they took all their data. They put it together. They said, you know what? The frog jumped less as the legs were removed. It's a good observation. All right. Can't argue with that. But then they concluded that a frog with no legs goes deaf. Uh, conclusion. Same thing happening today. Natural selection mutations? Yes. Darwin evolution? No. Real science confirms God's word again and again. Christian, if you will stand on God's word, you can defend your faith. Non-believer, the Bible's true. It's right about everything because it is God's word. And it's right about salvation. Put your faith and your hope in Christ and him alone. And that's really what this is all about, giving answers to give the answer to Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, guys, we recognize that is everyone's biggest need. You know, in case you're here, I don't know your hearts here, and we'll probably talk more about this later on, but I won't, I won't say this now. I feel kind of led to. We've got to recognize that the Bible says everyone lives for eternity. Do you realize that? Every person that I see right now, you live forever. Every single one of us. The question is, Where? 
And there are only two options, heaven or hell. And the Bible says this, to get to heaven, people think, oh, I've got to be good, right? No, actually, the Bible is the only religion that says this key difference. Every other religion, in some way, shape, or form, even atheism, says you can do enough good works to make your life have value. You can do enough good works to please some God, nebulous being, whatever God. Do enough good things, and maybe you'll get in. Only Christianity says this message. You can't. You can't. You can never do enough, enough good works to get into heaven. Why? Here's the key. God's standard, and this makes sense, is perfection. Because he's perfect and holy and will be around no sin without his wrath being poured out on that sin. To get to heaven, you must be perfect. That means you tell one lie in your entire life, you're done. We're all done. Amen? You steal one thing, even small, you're done. Dishonor your parents once, you're done. Lust one time, commit adultery in your heart, you're done. Get angry in your heart one time, call someone a fool, you're done. God requires perfection outside and in. That all your thoughts and your heart must be, must be perfect Always holy, never lustful, never coveting, never angry, always perfect, always focusing on God first, people second, yourself last, perfection, your entire life. That is God's unyielding, eternal, infinite standard. Any honest person, any honest person would say, but Brian, besides Jesus, the God man, nobody could do that. And that's the point of when the Bible says we all have sinned, we all fall short, and that's why we all need a Savior. That Christ, God, became flesh. The infinite become a finite. The timeless, reserved to time, restricted to time. How does God do that? I don't know. He's God. But he became flesh. He became one of us, our blood, to pay the perfect, infinite, eternal price we could never pay. On our behalf, that if we will repent of our sins, turn away from them, trust them as Lord and Savior, believe God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. Guys, that's the Bible's message of salvation, and it's right. The Bible gets everything right, past, present, and the future. Guys, one day, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. You either do it now or later. I pray you do it now. Confess Christ as Lord. I pray you do that. For the Christians, I encourage you, get answers to equip yourselves. Notice what I'm doing here. I'll do it again and again. I just want to give answers to give the answer. That's what we're doing. God's word is true. Here's the gospel. Because people need to get saved. That's what these books help do. If you've got any questions about this, I won't go through it all. I kind of did it before. But any questions, please come see me. Truly, I'm here to serve you guys in any way I can about any of the resources, any of the DVDs, anything I've said, our senses of ministry, other questions, please come see me. I'd love to chat with you, help in any way I can. I've got tons of books for the little kids. These are great. My son's three. We're doing this one right now, My Creation Bible. Uh, he loves it. We read it together. Good stuff. Uh, this book, I really, really want to learn about Ape Men. Didn't have time to talk about eight men today uh, because I'm talking too fast already. Amen. So I can't, can't squeeze anything else in. But uh, it's good answers to that. You can find those on the video table and this for kids as well. Tons of DVDs for all of our ADD struggling friends. These really help. The closest DVD to this talk is this one uh, by Ken Ham. Really, really good. Great for teens and adults. Uh, it's uh, basically similar to this talk in a lot of ways. Ken's doing it. Ken's got the cool Australian accent. People love hearing that, right? And they've added animation, so it's really engaging. Great for anybody, really. Teen it up. Same thing with this one. It's added six mini videos, fully animated. The guy talks fast. Great teaching tools. Other DVDs I really encourage you to check out. This one's great by Dr. Georgia Purdom. Got a uh, PhD in genetics from Ohio State. Uh, this one by Dr. 
David Minton on Three Ways to Make an Ape Man. Great DVD. You will not be disappointed if you get either one of those. They're fantastic dealing with those issues. If you like the pithy way, I'm trying to give you short, pithy answers to these questions. It's the kind of way they're played out in my book as well. If you like these sort of answers, that's where you want to go to get these. And kind of hear the same thing again, just written down. It's helpful. And, of course, the 10-Minute Bible Journey. Really what this book does, it gives you the biblical history we need to answer some of the skeptical questions of this age about the origin, about past, about dinosaurs and rock layers, rather understanding that history. Don't forget about the YouTube special. Take advantage of that, the magazine special as well. For you to subscribe to the magazine, get a free DVD. And again, please use the website. Literally thousands of free articles on the website. Hundreds of free videos. Use those. They're there for you to the glory of God. Use them. Give answers to give the answer. And then please find me while I'm here. If you have any questions, engage. But if you think of something later on, you're like, hey, I'm curious about this. Why do you guys do this? What do you mean by that? I'm just curious, whatever. You can connect with me on Facebook or Twitter and love to engage with you. You can follow my blog as well if you would like to do that. And now, in with one last quote, we'll close in a word of prayer and we'll hand it off and we'll transition to lunch. Is that a good thing? Amen. <laughs> one last little quote by an atheist who reminds us why this is so important. He says, Christianity has, fight, has fought, still fights, and will fight science to the desperate end over evolution. Because evolution destroys utterly and finally the very reason Jesus' earthly life was supposedly made necessary. Destroy Adam and Eve and the original sin. Destroy biblical history. And in the rubble, you'll find the sorry remains of the Son of God. If Jesus was not the Redeemer who died for our sins, and this is what evolution means, the Christianity is nothing. Either the Bible is right about all things or it's right about nothing. It's an authority issue. Stand on God's word. Give it a fence. We come back. We'll talk about the age of the earth. That's a big one. There's a lot of fun with that talk. Get ready for that. Get fuel back up. Don't eat too much. I don't see you guys passing out. All right. I'll make you stand up. We'll... Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for this day. Thank you again for just to be here with all these wonderful people to talk about the truth of your word and the gospel. Lord, we do pray that your word would go out. Your gospel would go out and you would change us. For believers, we'd be more molded into your image, be used by you for your glory, for the unbeliever, repentance and acceptance of Christ as Lord and Savior, and you would use them in a mighty way for your kingdom and for your glory. God, we love you. We praise you. I pray that you would be with us as we eat. Bless this food to our bodies, and may we just glorify you in our time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.